0: Welcome to Conversations with Zee and Vindesh, a weekly discussion that explores common life challenges and offers practical solutions. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. That's d-h-a-r-m-a-media.com. Welcome back, everyone, to this week's edition of Conversations. And today we're talking, Z, about an interview that I did as part of my spoken word project. This was interesting. It's a magazine called Authority Magazine, and it's an online magazine. You can Google it. They've come back to me a few times. So this is actually the third interview that I've done with them. They ask me a bunch of questions. I give them answers. They publish it. I think they like coming back to me because I'm a good writer, and I never push back. I never say this is too much. I just fill out the the responses to the questions, I do it in a thoughtful way. I bring our dispassionate perspective. So it's a different sort of perspective. It's a healing perspective. It's more of an Eastern philosophy perspective. Uh, So they came back to me a third time and asked me to do an interview on five things that we can do to heal America. So they said, Radia, you are a spoken word artist. You talk a lot about what's happening in society why don't you help us figure out how to navigate these times? Because we're in these times where literally we've gotten to a point where we can't have conversations. Part of it is cancel culture. But even aside from cancel culture, it's just the anger, it's the polarization, it's the echo chambers that we're in, it's the general distrust of the other side. Uh, There's tribalism, which is associated with this. And Z, we've talked about this before. I think part of it is that if people don't know what their life is about, if you don't have a strong foundation internally, that gives you a reason for being, that gives you some sense of purpose, then you gravitate towards different tribes and different ideas, uh, but you get too attached to those tribes, and then you can't interact with anyone on the other side. So this is what we've seen in society. This has been fueled by politicians and by the media, who I was going to say have figured this out, although they've always known this, but maybe in the age of technology, uh, this principle becomes even more powerful, that if you get people angry and afraid, they're going to pay attention. You can get them riled up, you can get them to buy subscriptions, Uh, you can get them to contribute to your campaigns, uh, to support you as you take political office. And you can translate those negative emotions almost into a currency or an asset that you can capitalize on. And it's a little bit sad. I mean, ideally, we would want people who are statesmen, who are looking out for the common good. But instead, we are where we are. We're in this age where people unfortunately in leadership positions are looking out for themselves. And they're basically saying, how can I push buttons? How can I manipulate the population, spread anger, fear, and hatred to increase my power and increase my control? And that feeds into trends around social media, cancel culture, echo chambers. It just makes the situation worse and worse. And if you look at almost the reaction of the common person, there are interviews that are done in the New York Times Uh, in other publications as well, where they just sit down, they do roundtables, and they talk to people. And I've seen this personally, just in my own life, uh, talking to my family or talking to my friends. There's a sadness. I mean, there's a resignation. This is perhaps the strangest part of it, that we're all part of this collective problem. We're all part of this country that is falling apart, that is being torn apart. But at the same time, it's kind of like a a resignation, what can we do about this? We're participants, but we don't have agency. We don't have an ability to change the outcome. It's almost like this train has too much momentum and it's just gonna go where it goes, regardless of what we do. So how do we navigate these times? And that was really the spirit of this article, Zee. So they came to me and they said, why don't you help us and our readers think through, what are the things that we can do to heal America, to get past this polarization? Give us five ideas. So I'd encourage everyone to check out the article. It actually covers a lot of the principles that we talk about on this podcast and gets into a pretty wide range of of issues. Uh, But in a way, the underlying theme of the interview was that there's not that much we can do, at least at a social level. There's no grand solution, at least in my views, Ian. I want to hear what you say in a second, but I'll just finish my thought. These trends have been in place for a long time. We have a general decline of consciousness, a general decline of health. People are losing their mind because they're on the cell phone all the time. We've gotten to a point where we're angry, we're entitled, uh, we're being fed the steady diet of hatred through the media, as we talked about. And then you add on top of that just the everyday stress of living. Uh, So the fact that rents are going up, inflation is higher, gas prices are higher. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty economically. There's geopolitical uncertainty. So we don't feel stable. We don't feel okay. And in that situation, we're more likely to lash out and beat down other people because we feel threatened. And when you feel threatened, it triggers that fight-or-flight syndrome, makes the polarization worse. So that's really the environment that we're in. And if you think about how we got there, to get out of this, we have to undo the things that got us to this point. So we have to take charge of our mental health Uh, We need to get people in office who actually care about the collective and not just about themselves. Uh, We have to be willing to listen, uh, to engage with others. And that's impossible to prescribe at a national level. I mean, even if you have those solutions in place, how do you get people to do it? You take something as simple as health. I mean, we know from COVID that if you have a strong immune system and you're healthy, you're going to be in better shape. And have less of a chance of contracting COVID, less of a, a chance of having a really bad outcome than if you are obese and diabetic. It's a simple prescription. But two years after the pandemic started, we haven't really seen any change in our collective health. If anything, it's getting worse. So very simple prescription, but how do you get people to adopt it? Similarly, on this topic, my view is to really get past the polarization at a national level, we have to change our collective consciousness, change the way that we see each other, uh, change the way that we identify with the ego. And we're looking to assert ourselves and control other people. And there's a certain weakness that underlies that. So it implies that we need to strengthen ourselves internally, strengthen our own character so that we don't have to act out, we don't have to prove that we're right. How do you do that? How do you force people or encourage people to move in that direction I don't know, I don't have a good answer for that. My feeling is that these trends are gonna play out the way that they play out, and this is just a period that we have to go through. But I refocused the discussion a little bit in the interview to get away from what can we do as a society to what can we do individually. So how can we find peace in our own heart and our own mind? How can we avoid the polarization? How can we navigate this environment? These are a lot of the principles that I discussed. We'll get in this in a second, But Z, why don't you kick us off? What's your view? Uh, I I talked a lot about what we can do at the collective level, which I don't think is that much, versus what can we do at the individual level. How do you think about that
1: distinction? Vin, um, we've discussed this a few times, and and, and I'll kind of uh, add to that or complement or review what we've talked about, is that I believe that we live in an age where the concept of activism is no longer beneficial. Group activism, where you get with your group and you guys are gonna go and change the world or you're gonna change the society. Because the mechanism of buy-in has been so strong that it's diluted activism to being another mindless activity that has no real um, ethical um, value cemented in the core movement of the activist. And and I mean that by when you see these different movements that go on um, and you get to the core of it, oftentimes there's maybe a few people that uh, have positioned themselves as either leaderships or brand holders, and they're figuring out a way to shave off resources to enrich themselves. So the very heart of activism has been lost. I was speaking to one of my sisters today, and I had an epiphany about growing up in Berkeley. So in the 60s and 70s in Berkeley, there were a lot of riots, a lot of activism, student activism, the home of the freedom of speech movement, all manner of human rights, um, um, challenges and and battles going on in terms of people developing ideologies. There was a day we were coming home from my junior high school, uh, walking down what's called Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley, and at the time, Uh, It was a two-lane street, and they were rioting over the Vietnam War, People's Park, or something like that, and I reminded my sister, that was the first time they had used uh, military-grade CS gas on human beings, and it was mainly college kids in high school, and junior high school. They had a barbed wire army tank driving down the street, telling everybody to disperse, just pumping this gas, and people were having asthma attacks and collapsing, and even more so, as we're walking through the crowd, uh, the Alameda County sheriffs announced that the people were in violation of some California penal code. Mind you, at this time, Reagan was governor, Reagan, which many people say that he was a wonderful, great man. And I understand why they say that. That's why I can talk to people. I have very people, people who are very dear to me that will share with me maybe a political view or a view on a political person that I don't necessarily go along with, but I'm not angry at them or upset with them as to how they feel about that person. But they know them in a certain way. We all know people in a certain way. And it's going to go to the point I'm going to make later. But as we're walking down the street, the Alameda County sheriffs announced that the, the governor of California had basically had a state of martial law. There's martial law in America. There's martial law. And they quoted some California penal code about unlawful assembly, and they said, you have 30 seconds to disperse. We're walking down the street. We noticed snipers on the roofs of the building, police snipers. They called them the blue meanies at the time. And they got their rifles up there, and they started firing on people. And there were gunshots whizzing over our head. And now, we're, we're junior high school kids mixed up with adults and college kids. And you realize that these people were very young, these protests. I look back now. I thought they were grown-ups, they were just college kids. And there was a store called Blue Beards, um, and I'm sharing just a piece of history for everybody, it may not matter based on where you're at, but I just want to try and draw a picture of it for you. So there was a store called Blue Beards, and one of those stores that you have to go walk down a flight of stairs to get in from street level, you know, you know those kind of place, where you walk downstairs to get in it. Like the bar at Friends or something, you walk downstairs to get in there. So we were at Blue Beards, they started shooting, and then all of a sudden the college kids pushed all the smaller kids us down into uh, Bluebeard's and there looked to be uh, football players, um, um, you know, athletic kind of clean cut football player type guys. And they said, cover the kids. And they just pushed us all down and one of the kids, the top of his head was blown off by the police. And um, everybody was screaming and yelling and, and they were shooting. They began shooting and you can look this up, the Berkeley riots. and. Someone gave an order that in the United States to kill protesters. So at that moment, the activists who firmly believed in the American idea of free assembly, the right to protest, their whole view of America was shaken. Their whole idea of a free society was shaken by the orders set forth by the government exacted upon by the military, or the police, which became a military organization at that point. And for the people on the ground, for us watching, it was horrible. Um, but for those who didn't really believe in the system, it was expected. It, it kind of fired up more, um, animus towards the system. But it also, I think it was showing you, if we move through history where activism is going, where is it going? That, If we don't have clear messages to each other and we have common concerns, but we have so many, so much minutia, so many minor pieces of that concern, that those even within the body of activism can't come to a common consensus to negotiate, to manage, to move, that doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work anymore. And because the labeling and branding is so good in the media that you can The difference between a a terrorist and a local hero is whose side they're on, not their behavior or their actions. So we no longer have a mechanism in place that we have some sense of of the rules of ethics. What are the rules of war? We don't have that. It's more of an an anarchy. Uh, And that anarchy starts in the heart of people. And I believe that it is fostered by this volatile consumerism more, more, me, me, more, more, me, me. And it affects all of us. And it may not be as obvious because you sit around with people that are reasonably intelligent people and they can see the world in such extreme differences based on their comfort, their likes, their dislikes, but it's not based on the algebra of human commerce and social sustainability. It's not based on that. So we live in, in a different era. So if if you believe in human rights it's no longer a blanket statement. You don't just say, "Oh, I believe in, you believe in human rights for certain people. For people you know or people you like. <clears throat> if you believe in environmental security it has its limits to what you like. And we're pushed that way, we talk that way, me me myism. So it makes it a very difficult task to sit and share a common consensus with a large enough people to make social movement. Again, it's like sometimes I think of it like those horror movies where there's an unseen hand or some giant computer um, controlled by some diabolical being or person that's controlling the thoughts of people. And so then if that's the case, we have to go back to the smallest quantum of human reaction, which are people you're close to and work with that. And then even more so work with yourself and work within your own heart. And I've been saying that over and over because this activism thing isn't working. It's just not working. You see that recently um, this Roe v. Wade issue. Well it's always been an issue. Why did people get caught off guard? Because everybody is into their own world. And they figured somebody else is taking care of that. While the people for whatever reason who are Anti-choice, for whatever reason, they were very focused collectively on taking imposing uh, the government will upon people. And whatever your belief in something, I'm not knocking your belief because I understand where it comes from. If somebody has a maybe they were raised some some aspect of Christianity, and they have this idea of a certain path to the afterlife, and so they'll have strong beliefs that way. The problem with that is i i I might be a person who has a different belief system, and should I denigrate you, Should I deny your existence, or should I set up healthy boundaries in our lives so that i don't I don't impose upon you and you can live as freely as possible? See, there are very few people talking that way. I talk to a dear friend and I'm always discussing with him how there are no more statesmen anymore politicians there are no statesmen, there are no people that can look at a collective group of society, a nation, a world, and say, look, I see we're all kind of different. What are the things we have in common? What are the common themes that we can work with and negotiate from that platform? And I won't go any further than that. I don't have the will or ability or the know-how to go beyond that. We all want, let's say, fresh air. So how can my activities be uh, adjusted uh, adapted so that I don't impose my bad air habits on you so that we all can share in good air. We, most of us want our families to be uh, somewhat safe from arbitrary uh, violence and mayhem. I think there's things we can agree upon. Then we have to talk about how do we come to that. But that's not going to happen in large groups of people. It's going to first happen at home. It's going to first happen there. Wellness, health and wellness are field that I'm in. It's not going to happen in big hospitals. Because their primary objective is to make money for their shareholders. Your health and well-being is the fourth or fifth most important thing. If you think about, of all, what is it, of uh, 38 developed nations or something, the U.S. is the only nation that doesn't have health care population. Is it like 37, 38 nations and all the so-called developed nations? They all have some sort of health, general health care plan for people except the United States. So if you see that 37 people are doing something that's kind of right and you're doing something that's real wrong, but you can't talk about it because it's like saying that you hate your mom, um, those are problems we have to work on where we need to have a family talk, maybe sit down with your neighbor, your friend, with different ideas and come to some sort of understanding. And sometimes it doesn't work. Anybody that's had maybe a crazed neighbor understands what that's like. Or if you had a crazy roommate. So right now we're operating on the crazy roommate, crazy neighbor level of things. And we wanna get back to, we we do ourselves a service getting back to the healthy uh, shared space relationship that we lost many years ago. So as we move forward, I don't think about nationalism. How do I make a strong nation? I think about how can we make a healthier world? Because remember, borders and boundaries are arbitrary. Somebody went out and said, this is my land. I'm gonna take this land from somebody and I'm gonna put on a map an arbitrary border or line. What that really represents isn't the land itself, but it's the mentality. The people within these borders are to believe, speak, and act a certain way. That's what borders are. When I go into the border of Germany, most people will speak German, and they are into German culture. When I go to the borders of Indonesia, or what they call it, that within that range, that doesn't mean there aren't Indonesians and Germans outside of that. But the vast majority of people are the German way or the Indonesian way. I would challenge friends and neighbors, well, what's the, what's your way? What's the American way? What is, what's the Southern California way? And then ask yourself, do you fit in it to such a percentage that that's what you can claim to be your city, your nation, your state? And most people will answer no, if you really sit there quietly. Um, and the strange things that come out of people because of that narrowing perspective that has not, has really grown unchecked. The other day, um, uh, one of our, our, our dear folks that works with us, her husband saw me and I hadn't seen him while we were just talking. And he says, yeah, I listen to, is it Jordan or Gordon Peterson? Jordan you know, he's, he's, yeah, it's Jordan Peterson. He said, he's the sage of white men. There's a white guy and I said, sage of white men? I like some of the stuff the guys say, yeah, I agree with some. But why is he the sage, do all white men follow, and believe everything he says. No. Some, I, I think a lot of people like Jordan Peterson. And a lot of people dislike him. But I don't think it had anything to do with the idea of white. And I was really shocked for a moment to hear the guy. Because I've been around him. I don't know him that well. I know his family better than him. Because we work together in the health and wellness field. But I've always I've been at his house. and he's, he's a, My kids have stayed at the house. And it was really weird to hear him say that. But it wasn't said in a malicious way. He wasn't even aware until I asked him. I said, why is he the white man's sage? And who is the white man? Who, is there just like, is there a structure, a, a rule, a constraint? Is there a kind of a template for the white man? And there isn't one. But we're, we are so quick to say that so that we don't have to really get into contrasting understandings. And I want us as individuals, I think if we work on who we are, study that, we can present ourselves to the world better and we can face challenges uh, in a a much more um, productive way by getting understanding first in ourselves. Because this guy, when he said that thing to me, he didn't even know he said it, but it revealed to me his perspective. And being completely candid, when I said it, I was kind of bothered by it because i like him and i like his family and i trust my kids with him and i don't really see people that way you understand what i'm saying i don't wow that to me it was kind of weird what were you gonna say caitlin
2: um i was gonna say that uh the reason why he's probably referred to him as the sage for the white guys is because the uh Jordan Peterson has a lot of books on how to navigate life, and he targets men, specifically younger men, because of that. I because he's realized that they don't really have any guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also like advocated for women too, and has taught women how to negotiate higher pay mm-hmm. and all that. Um, I'm not saying I agree with all of his ideologies. I'm no. just saying that... But, but that
1: why, would you say he's the white man's sage?
2: Yeah, only because...
1: But, but isn't his advice universally his beneficial? His
2: advice is universal. I wouldn't call him the white man's sage, but I would just say a lot of white... The white males are his highest targeted audience. It's like 80% of his audience are, are happen to be white males.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It 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 yeah, it, it it's i I don't know. I guess just who I am and where I'm at in, in my life, I, I, I acknowledge that people are different, they have different cultural upbringings, different ethnicities, but that's not front and center whenever I deal with people or if I hear something, that's not on the metric in which I take what I hear. And I've developed that over the years. I um I I tend to have certain preferences that over the years have evolved. There's a time when maybe I wouldn't even read something. It's like people wouldn't read Mein Kampf, right? Um, My Struggle, that's Hitler's book. I have always felt it was important to read it. I I, want to read what people are thinking. How did they come to about to what they think? If we just don't have any even inquisitiveness about how did you become who you are, you're more prone to be offended, threatened, and see others as a a threat. Once you understand how people see the world, you have a much more uh, uh, strategic and tactical opportunity in navigating people in this world. I understand why you think the way you do. I understand how you arrived at that perspective. By understanding that, then it goes back. You start to understand yourself better. And then you can let go of maybe undue fears you have about people. Undue um, sense of despair or threat. And that to me is the way we make our world better. Even if I don't move into your neighborhood or go over there, I, I'm no longer seen as a threat. Right? And you're no longer seen as a uh, a, a, a wicked, despicable creature, right? It's like, I get the way you are. I understand who you are. I was having a discussion about, uh, with uh, one of our clients, about um, cancel culture. And um, uh, he shared with me that he had been caught up in some kind of um, cancel thing where somebody said like 50 years ago he did sex something sexually inappropriate and they wanted him to lose his job. And, you know, you hear this a lot. And I, I thought it was, it was it, as I shared with him, I said, you know, it's, it's interesting that we get polarized over that, where you can't, for example, if somebody accuses you of something, if you rebut it, or show or there, some way that you either victim shaming or attacking the victim, but we haven't proved that you're a victim and there's a, a, a villain. Um, you have other situations where, let's say it's issues of racism where people have, there was somewhere, I think you see the thing at Sesame Street Land somewhere, where like Elmo or the Cookie Monster decided not to engage black children. And so I I looked at it from a lot of different ways. Yeah, why are they going? Like It's like years ago when we came to the country and they took us to Disneyland and they had a certain day for black people. I don't want to go to Disneyland this day. It's the weirdest thing my way. So I, I, I do a personal boycott of things. I believe in the free market. So if these people aren't treating you well, don't feed them and they will have less nutrients to act against you, right? And nobody really understands that not only is it a way to reduce the impact of negative behavior, but it's also an opportunity to promote growth. Just free market. Just do the free market. So I won't be taking my kids to Sesame land because it's, a neo, it's neo-Nazi Sesame land. So I'm not gonna go there, but there are many people who say, well, we should go there. You should fire everybody there. You should get there. And the people that are doing that, they probably didn't do it for malicious reason, but they didn't know that should be in the interview. Right? Do you hate African-Americans? That, that's, I don't even know if that's, I, I haven't been to a job interview in years, but is that on the application? Right? And so if it's not on the application, Well, it's not an issue. And we want to be able to talk, and I understand why those people behave that way. There might even be unconscious bias where the people don't interact with certain groups of people, so they just don't speak to them. It's not on their. That's how the human brain works. You don't see people that you don't interact with, they've done experiments. People don't see maids, they don't see housekeepers. How many times do you look somebody in the eye who's waiting on your table and say, hey, how are you doing? What's your name? We don't do that that often. That person's serving your food. I always speak to them, get to know you, know me. I get to know everybody in the restaurant because I don't want them spit my food. I've said that before. And if we're going to like do our part for the world, we don't have to be in big groups anymore. You don't have to put a bumper sticker on your car. Just do you. And somebody, I saw an article that was negative about that. And I don't care what the article said. It was in the article. this do you thing is really wrong. I don't think it's wrong. I think if you work on yourself and the people next to you are working on themselves, then you find people with like minds, common interests, common ideas, goals, and objectives. You now have a tribe. That tribe gets bigger and bigger. You have a nation. That nation gets bigger and bigger. You have a, a society. And that's where we at, then. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You bring up a lot of interesting points. Some of this I covered in the interview. I brought up this example. You remember that uh, movie Z, American History X? Have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was such a great movie. Uh, it's about Edward Norton who plays a white supremacist. And he goes to jail uh, for killing a black man. And then he gets to jail and he's been taught to just hate black people. It turns out that he's working in the laundry room with an inmate who's black. And at first, he's not talking to the guy, doesn't want anything to do with him. But they're in jail. So after a while, they start connecting. They start sharing experiences. And he hears this guy's story. And I forget exactly what happened, but it was something like this guy didn't even commit a crime. But because of some provision of the law, he was put in jail for 20 years Edward Norton was blown away. He was like, wow, the system actually works that way. You you did nothing and you're incarcerated. And so he gets to hear this person's story. He gets to see the world from a different perspective, gets to connect with them on an actual human level. They become friends. They're they're laughing. They're joking together. And then his, his views completely change. So he leaves jail and he's got a totally different view about race. And he spends the rest of the movie trying to save his brother from making the same mistakes that he made. And I thought that was so interesting. I mean, it's such a simple point. But it's exactly what you said, Z, that when you don't interact with people, you don't see them, they're not human to you, they're not real to you. You think about just our news cycle, we're outraged about the stuff that's in front of us. We've talked about this before, how the war in Ukraine, when this first started, it was like, oh, my God, how could Putin do this? It's so horrible. Look what's happening to the Ukrainians. And yeah, certainly horrible things happening. But what about the rest of the world? And this is why the Middle East got pissed off, India got pissed off, Africa got pissed off because they're like, you don't care about us. You just care about Ukrainians who look like you, who have the same skin color that you do. And what's interesting now, Z, is that the news cycle around Ukraine has died off. And so people have completely forgotten about it. Even though there was that outrage for a period of time, now it's disappeared. It's out of sight, out of mind. You don't think about it. And it becomes worse than that because if you look at some of the trends that are going on today, you don't actually have to interact with anyone who you don't want to. You can live your entire life online. You could just order stuff from Amazon. You could get food from Grubhub. You could have people come and deliver this stuff. Maybe you have to interact with them when they drop it off. I don't know, but they might just be able to drop it off outside. You can have your own social circle You can immerse yourself in the metaverse, in technology, spend all your time on Facebook. Like that kid who shot up that grocery store in Buffalo, New York, who spent all his time on 4chan and these different online groups that fed his mind and basically gave him a view of the world that was incorrect. It got him to believe in this great replacement theory and convince him that white people are under threat and there's a conspiracy to replace the white population with browns and blacks. And it's threatening your livelihood, your culture. So if you're in that that bubble where you're just engaging with other people who are feeding your fantasies, it's not tied to any real life experience. And any real life experience that you might have, you shun because you cancel other people. And not only do you cancel other people, but you're self-righteous about it. I mean, that's probably the worst thing you feel morally superior because you're shutting down someone else's point of view. Oh, you shouldn't think that way. You're wrong. You're beneath me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Suddenly, you've created an echo chamber. You've created your own reality, which is separate from the real world. It is separate from any real experience, from any real interaction. And there's no check on that because if you don't have that visceral feedback, our interaction with the real world is what gives us the input to understand the reality around us. If we don't have it, we can believe whatever we want to believe. Who's to tell us that we're wrong if we never see any evidence to the contrary? Uh, So we can just feed theories about other groups of people and how horrible they are, how they're pedophiles, how they're child molesters. The media feeds into this, Facebook and YouTube feed into this because they want to push our buttons. And you can see how we get to a very dangerous place just by not interacting But the antidote is so simple. It's like, just get out into the world and interact. Hear other people's stories and approach interactions not in a way where you are trying to force your point of view on someone else, uh, where you are trying to beat someone else down and prove that you're right. That's another thing that I talk about in this interview. We've got to put the ego aside. If you approach interactions like that, immediately they're going to escalate. You're going to be in conflict. Polarization is going to get worse. You're going to push each other farther and farther apart. But if you go with an open mind and you go with an idea that I just want to hear someone else's story, I'm not looking to prove that I'm right or they're right or get into some intellectual debate. I just want to learn about the world. They've got a different point of view than I do. They've got a different set of life experiences. And the more that I hear about life, that I hear about different groups of people, the more nuances I'm familiar with, the more I can sharpen my own point of view. And maybe my point of view doesn't even change, Z. You know, maybe... I maintain that point of view but at the very least perhaps I've got more compassion and even if I don't agree with someone else I can see where they're coming from and if I see where they're coming from I don't hate them they don't seem illogical and stupid and and brutish <laughs> you know subhuman uh, like m- maybe there's a world where I can recognize the validity of what they say so we might not agree but we can get along so that principle by itself just or maybe it's two principles that I'm combining but one having that willingness to engage with a lot of different types of people in a way where you just want to hear their stories. And number two, putting the ego aside so you don't get into this escalation and this conflict. Those two things to me are the most important uh, behaviors that we can employ to get past this polarization. And again, maybe it doesn't change the country, but it changes us. It helps us see the world more clearly. Everyone that we interact with we're gonna de-escalate, And that's gonna have a multiplicative effect. They're gonna go out into the world. Maybe they'll learn something from us. It'll change the way that they think about other groups of people. At the very least, it'll lower blood pressure. So we're not gonna be constantly getting into fights with others. So collective blood pressure will calm down. And it probably doesn't take that much. I mean, I don't know what the tipping point is for the population, whether it's 5% or 10% of people or 20%, but I would imagine that you could get to a point where there's pretty radical social change just from a relatively small group of people. Um, You know, not not just a handful of people, but uh, call it 10, 20% of the population. If they start taking charge of themselves, start setting that example, start changing the way that they interact with other people because of the network effects and the multiplicative power of connection. I connect with you, you connect with others, they connect with even more. That starts to propagate. And I think that's really the recipe. And there's no downside to it because worst case, even if the world doesn't change, we change. We can go through life. We can learn something about the world. We can learn how to navigate. We can get along with different types of people. It becomes more interesting. I think we become more effective at living. And we just go through life not feeling like we want to kill someone all the time. I mean, that to me is probably the most important thing. I don't know how you feel about it, but it's like if you have that compassion and that understanding that chip on your shoulder, that sense that everyone is out to get you, dissipates. And that's really when you can start cultivating more of that calm state, more of that peace of mind, which for everything we talk about, Z, is, is so fundamental.
1: Yeah, Vin, you, you, um, you triggered stuff, as they say, triggered, they call it now. The word compassion is so important. Um, compassion isn't weak. It isn't this kind of mamsy-pamsy stuff that oftentimes people sh- say, It's like being in in a war with another soldier. He was conscripted to do battle, you were conscripted to battle. He was fed a doctrine, you were fed a doctrine. But in that field of battle, you understand, hey, his duty is to take my life and my duty is to take his. If at some point we find ourselves both wounded sitting next to each other, the war is over for us at that time and we get to know each other. We understand how we got to where we are. But I don't know him well enough to hate him. I don't know him well enough to like him, but I do appreciate that we're in the same place right now. Um, When you're on a plane, humanity, we are like passengers on a plane. Of the number of people on that plane, how many people are pilots, co-pilots, and engineers, and flight attendants? Not a whole lot. Most of us are just hapless passengers on this journey. And there are a few people that know how to keep everything working, leave them alone, and let them keep them working. And if we want them to do something, we collectively say, hey, let's turn this plane around. Well, the passengers are protesting. They want to take the plane in another direction. Um, the metaphor I'm using is to think about us in life. We're moving through this world, but we have no captain where there's no pilot. So somebody has to step up and be that. And for the people who rebel or resist that, you have to honor that and let them go their separate way. The challenge is when we have just shared space, one person's decision could affect many other people. So by having compassion, we understand how to navigate, negotiate, and how to communicate to a way that we can attain the objectives we're seeking. What is your objective? Is your objective to have a healthy world? Is it to be a world that looks a certain way? Do you want your Santa Claus to be a certain kind of Santa Claus, or you just want some jolly person giving out gifts? What do you want? What do you want your world to look like? And that's where the problem comes in, because we maybe have fixed ideas. Who's a good leader? Like I said, I was inspired talking to a friend of the day, and um, we were talking about leaderships. And though I disagreed with him on people he saw as great leaders, I understood how he arrived to that point. I think he understands why I arrived to mine. I see leadership. As like in the Tao. There are different types of leaders. There are tyrants, right? There are bullies, there are beggars, all different type. But the greatest leader is a noble leader who puts his people first. As they say, lead from behind. A lot of people don't like that term, but they don't understand what it means because what it means is one who can observe the workings of things, move things where they need to be so everything works out okay and the people don't even know that they did it. And so when we're at home, it's the same. We lead first by example. If you want your partner to be in shape, you be in shape. If you want your partner to uh, be more studious, you be more studious. And then you observe. And if they don't come around, then you come up with a new strategy to learn to accept. And if you can't accept it, then leave your journey and the pathway open so you could take a separate journey away from that situation. But no one has to be beat, forced, uh, contorted to be something they're not because that promotes rebellion. We see that in our society. Rebellion is coming because people can't afford gas. We can't tolerate um, leaders that are out of their mind. All these people are out of their mind. So we're, we're in a rudderless ship, a pilotless plane. If you're in a if you're on a plane and you hear somebody say, hey, the pilot has died. Imagine you're driving a plane. The pilot has died and the co-pilot is Joe Biden. And uh, Trump is the flight attendant. <laughs> just Just imagine what everybody would be like. That's the society we live in now. And then also on that plane, the one or two flight attendants are trying to organize the passengers to to hopefully have the best outcome from a disaster, and you have random uh, special interest groups that are demanding maybe a pink life preserver and somebody else wants a glittery one and somebody else wants a macho man uh, floaty to hit the, they're all gonna die. The people that can observe, listen, get together with a healthy, reasonable strategy, overcome petty differences, they will survive. That's where we're in a plane and the pilot has died, Joe Biden's the co-pilot, Trump's the flight engineer, and there are no parachutes. What do you think about that, Caitlin? I think uh, I'll be driving. There you go. Caitlin just decided to opt out, and that's what I encourage everyone to do, opt out um, and, 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 and drive yourself. It's a little slower, but it's safer. Right? What do you think, Van?
0: Yeah, I think it's a cool analogy. (laughs) I mean, it's funny because you think about what you want in a leader in a situation where a plane is going down, the pilot dies. What kind of co-pilot do you want? You want someone who's competent, who can take charge, who is flexible, uh, who can make difficult decisions, look at information, pivot if they need to. Uh, who uh, cares about landing the thing. You know, it's like that guy, Sully, uh, the one who landed the plane in the Hudson, uh, who did a tremendous job under a lot of pressure. And part of the reason he was able to do that is that he felt the weight of all those people's lives on his shoulders, and he rose to the occasion. You you look at Biden, I mean, I don't know what your view is. It's like, would he even be aware that the plane is going down? (laughs) Would he be able to hear information coming in? Would he be able to see the controls? But that's the situation we're in. Those are the leaders that we have. So I absolutely agree. I mean, we're unfortunately at a point where we can't trust the system. I don't think you've ever trusted the system, Z, but people are catching up with your point of view. Or maybe you've sown enough discord over time that you've created the the destruction that we're seeing right now. You've kind of worked behind the scenes to to
1: get us to where we are. Ben, I think I have um, my own issues because I was raised in, a, in, a, in like I said, a, a very revolutionary family that was involved in international and national and, and pan-African struggles. So we were always educated to hold leaders, pilots, government to very high standards in order to maintain a social harmony. And when you don't see it, there are signs right away that you just don't see. You know, and the problem with that is that most of us still trust the system. Even when people complain, let's say they complain about Black Lives Matter, um, they're not protesting against America. They're looking for provisional slavery. They want inclusiveness. And then you look at other groups that are protesting, let's say, the election. It didn't go their way. But they believed in a system. And so that when the system didn't work for them in their way, they wanted to burn it down. And that tends to be the nature because you have no captain. Everybody is pulling on the controls, but nobody knows how to fly. You think about your home life first, your leadership at home. And you have archetypes. As we mentioned, we're using the airplane metaphor. So there's the guy that uh, saved everybody. Um... In, um, in, in, in on the Hudson. And there was an even bigger rescue of Ethiopian Airlines where some guys got on and they, they wanted to take over the plane and the Ethiopian pilot figured out how to land a plane with no fuel in the Indian Ocean and saved many, many people. Many people, the pilot survived. It was unbelievable. And when you talk to that pilot, the common theme, even though One guy was from Ethiopia and Africa. Another guy was Sully Sullenberger. They sound the same. My duty was to the souls on board the aircraft that they had entrusted me with their lives. They entrusted me with their lives. That's the kind of leadership. That's an example of leadership. You don't hear that from any of these clowns. And some of them either are mentally incapable or emotionally and psychically incapable. You have narcissists, and you have somebody who's just outright brain dead. So I would I would not trust them to do the right thing under pressure, and they have all shown it. And for those of us who are opting out, let's be um, like Lula Bate, Sully Sullenberger. Let's be like that in our own home. Be an example of the world. If you see ethnic and, and racial and uh, strife of all kind, don't be that, that's all. Don't be that person. Raise your kids, raise your family. Talk to people who have like interests no matter where they're from. Do you, I really believe in that. And so then we can work with a lot of these problems because we can't, we can't stop what's happening. We just want to get out least scarred. We want to have the fewest wounds so that as we rebuild, as we settle in, we have a a, a much more positive story or coloring of our life that had we just stayed there and pretended that the invisible arm of the high overlord of the world is going to take care of everything and we're entitled to that. You follow me, Vin?
0: It's interesting because people still want to believe. They still want to believe that things work, but each day, faith is shaken. You look at institutions.
1: And I got to tell you, it's failed. It's failed, people. You're on the Titanic. The band is playing, but the ship is sinking. And that ship is this illusion about how society works. Look at the crash of the Bitcoin. Why couldn't you see that coming, people? There is nothing there to see. I'm sorry, I'm not a finance expert. I'll admit that. But once they, they said it was deregulated, it was decentralized currency, it's not. Because when Russia got into thing, they shut down all their Bitcoin. They took all their Bitcoin. So if some government can take it, it's not decentralized, people. Gold is back in. Because you can trade a nugget of gold for something. So tangible, visceral things cyber relationships aren't relationships if you're in love with somebody on the internet and it's a bot or something like that and you haven't touched interacted looked in their eyes you're completely delusional and to be in a better place healthy go meet people talk to people i was talking to a young lady the other day because i'm trying to find a a girlfriend for my nephew met this pretty young lady i talked to she said um, wow, how do you learn how to, I feel so comfortable talking to you. And I said, well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm occupied with a marriage, so I, I can't be your boyfriend my nephew can. Plus, I'm old as your grandfather, but she didn't seem to care because I have game. So I'm telling her, she, I said, well, most people in your generation have been online all their life. So what you're experiencing talking to me is known as human interaction you've never experienced human interaction. And it feels weird and good and tickly, okay? So go out and interact with people. Huh, Caitlin, right? They haven't experienced human interaction. So the more that we can engage, that's why I tell people, and I appreciate all of my folks out there who shot me text and said hi and things like that. That's a start, but I need to hear your voices, all right? That's a cheap shot for all the people. I love you, but come and call me. Cool thing, one of my students, Debbie, from 30 years ago showed up the other day after your podcast. She showed up when we went to lunch together, had a wonderful time, we got caught up, and just being in her space energy just lifted my spirits. So all of you, if you're far away or near, uh, put your voice out there, that's that's a beginning. And that's how we're gonna change our world, or we're gonna keep our, our little life raft afloat. You follow me, Ben?
0: Yeah. No, I totally agree. There's no substitute for it. We're social animals. You think about just how good it feels to be nurtured, to be loved, to be in the company of people that you care about, you can laugh with. It makes us healthy. I mean, that's how we thrive. It's the exchange of ideas, the exchange of intimacy. And even beyond that, even if it's people that we don't like, at least if we know how to interact with them, as we've talked about, you can get through the world without too much friction uh, you can appreciate their point of view. You might even form some friendships that you weren't expecting uh, which uh, which makes life more interesting. I, I will say one final thing maybe one caveat. Uh, so the value of human interaction I believe is is crucial and we've moved away from that. At the same time, actually maybe it's not even a caveat. It, maybe it's a slightly separate point. It, it's really about knowing when to pick your fights and when to engage in discussions. So even though we need to have those relationships, as we've talked about in the past, we also need limits around those relationships. We need to understand the nature of those relationships, where we can go with certain people, which saves us a lot of headaches. A lot of times we get dragged into pointless arguments where there's no resolution. It was just a waste of time, a waste of energy. I talk about this, I share some uh, some stories about the times I had with my family where we were arguing about things And it was kind of like we had different points of view and I was pressing the point. And I got to the point where I thought, why am I doing this? We're not going to get to any common understanding. We're just creating friction. We're creating tension. And these are people that I love. I mean, these are people that I care about. So if I keep on going down this path, I'm going to damage the relationship. These little things accumulate like paper cuts. And we look at life and our perception of someone else is based on the thousands of small interactions that we have. So it actually alters that relationship. Uh, And having that awareness for me has been very useful. And it saved me just a lot of headaches. I mean, a lot of stupid arguments, a lot of pain. Uh, Honestly, just keeping my mouth shut at times has been really beneficial.
1: And yeah, Vin, you said one word. And and, and as we leave today, for um, all of us opt-outs out there, here's the word, thrive, thrive. Thrive. How do you grow, thrive, not just live and grow, but grow good, grow nurtured, grow healthy. And then you think of the other side of that, which is failure to thrive. And we know from the study of animals and children that the lack of interaction, that creature fails to thrive. I've encountered adults from different political or or, or religious sects who didn't have affection, They don't explore affection. They don't thrive. So when you deal with them, it's like you're dealing with um, somebody who has been in a mental institution for a long time or been isolated from society. And the way that they show love and affection is through purchasing things, odd gifts, things like that. And they stand there very in a frozen manner and says, do you like the flowers? Do you like the house? Do you like the car? I like it very much. You must love me because you gave me a car or you gave me a thing. But they won't touch each other. They won't express affection. Because if they do that, it opens up the mind. And if the mind is open, you won't be in a cult. So let us thrive. Let everybody thrive. If you're sitting with somebody, give them a hug. If you haven't hugged somebody, squeeze them tight. And that's another test. Just squeeze them tight and see what happens. Do they melt in your arms? Or do they become ice cold and rigid? And it may not be you. It could be that they're just failing to thrive. They've never known true human contact. That's why some people go crazy with human contact. They go berserk because it's so electrifying. And then also the contact doesn't always have to be of a a, a deeply intimate nature. It could be a caring voice. It could be politeness. It could be a bit of concern. It could be listening. Hey, how was your day? And maybe it was the boringest day in the world, but you listen. And that shared space allows us to thrive. As people get older, my nephew, one of our relatives, uh, has gotten some health issues in his advanced years, and my nephew went up and washed him and shaved his head. And and by the time my nephew left, he was up and walking and he hadn't got up in days. I had a client who's had some issues with his legs and just doing the body work and, and encouraging him and talking in a familiar and warm way. He was able to move around much better. That's called thriving. If that does that for the sick and in turn, what would it do for you and I? Also, the opposite of that is cancer. Failure to thrive is a cancer of the soul. All right, yeah, let's
0: uh, let's put it, yeah, let's thrive. Put aside the ego, go meet some people, get out of virtual land. That's it. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. Each five-star review helps us bring you more unique and insightful content. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. Peace.